0: And this morning, uh, I was saying how one of the ways that I think it would help us to understand uh, this uh, song better would be to have uh, people read uh, the, the read the song uh, as uh, I'm going to preach it. So the people that are speaking uh, are the ones that are speaking in the reading, uh, and the way that they're being, uh, the direction of the conversation, who is being spoken to, hopefully, will be seen as well. So this is uh, how uh, it's going to work. I've never done this before, so hopefully uh, this, this will go just swimmingly. Uh, but me and Paula are going to be, uh, the, I'm going to be the man, <laughs> Paula's going to be the woman. Uh, but you are going to be, the, in the NIV it's the friends, okay? However, as I was saying this morning, uh, it doesn't necess- when the, uh, the, the titles of who's speaking is written, it does, it's uh, the translators that's made that decision and it doesn't always, uh, there's not always agreement. And tonight I'm not in agreement uh, with the NIV uh, designating verse 8 to the friends. Uh, so you don't need to join in on that bit. But what we're going to do is on the screen, uh, this is the words that the congregation needs to join in with. Uh, you are uh, Paula and my friends, uh, which is very true of course. Uh, but you join in, uh, if you see at the end of verse 4, uh, that's where the friends uh, together say these words. So I'm just going to rely on you to do that when the appropriate moment comes. Uh, but Paul is going to uh, go to the microphone here. And when in the song uh, the man is speaking, or the woman is speaking to the man, and the man is speaking to the woman, uh, the idea is that we're going to look at each other. But there's times when the, when the woman in the song is speaking to her friends, so she's going to speak uh, to you at that point. So if you don't want to follow along in the Bible, but just want to see what's going on, that might be helpful too, but as long as some of you know when to come in as the friends, that would be really helpful. Okay, so uh, this is uh, Solomon's Song of Songs, and uh, Paula uh, is going to begin our reading.
1: No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards and my own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends?
0: If you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep. And graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While
1: the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi.
0: How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves.
1: How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys.
0: Like a lily among thorns, is my darling among the young women.
1: Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires.
0: Well, I've entitled the set, this section uh, of the song, uh, A Passionate Desire, because it's all about longing. Now, we all, all of us uh, have desires, don't we? Whoa. So, for example, uh, if we were to think of uh, food, uh, food is an example, of course, of a desire that all of us have, isn't it? We are hungry, and so we want to eat, and so we go and we get some food. But all of us, in some way, and to various degrees, uh, desire intimacy. Not necessarily sexual intimacy, although that is certainly what's going on uh, in this poem, Uh, But all of us have a desire for relationship, don't we? And ultimately, what we're going to see in this song is that that longing is fulfilled fully and completely only in Jesus Christ. And there is a a longing right at the very beginning of this song, right off the bat, at the very start, uh, we see the longing that this uh, woman has for this man. And at the very beginning, we see a longing for love. Notice it says, let him kiss me. There's an exclusivity here. I want him. I don't want anybody else. I just want him. Let him. And him alone, him. Let him kiss me. And notice the kind of kiss that she's after here. This isn't like a, a peck on the cheek. This isn't a kiss on the forehead. This isn't like from your uncle who smells a bit and has stuff in his beard. This is a kiss with his mouth. This is something intimate. Let him, him alone, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And it's kisses. It's more than one. It's something that is lingering. Something that is intimate. Intimate. Now, why does she want to do that? Well, in verse 2, it continues. Because your love is more delightful than wine. Uh, the word for love here, could uh, li- it, just, it literally means um, uh, caresses or lovemaking. So she's looking for him to, to be her sexual partner, to, to make love to her. Because it's more delightful than wine. Now in the Bible, wine is a, is a drink of celebration. Uh, it's sensual, it's rich, it's pleasurable. You don't gulp wine down, you take your time over wine, don't you? So in that very first verse of the song, we see that a physical desire and we see that it is good. Now at this point, many people would argue that they're not even married yet. And she has this longing to be with this man. And I would say that that is even a good thing to have that longing. If a couple are going to get married and they come to us and want to have marriage counseling and, or pre-marriage counseling rather and, and there's no physical attraction at all and they're repulsed by each other, there's a problem, isn't there? So the desire here is something that is, is good and it's something that we should desire as married people with our spouses. There's nothing here to suggest that this is in any way a bad thing. But notice in verse 3 that this physical desire is deeper than the mere externals. It's deeper than just sex. As we look at this song, it works through the senses. We've seen uh, in verse 2 the touch of a kiss and the taste of wine. And in verse 3 we come to the sense of smell, the smell of perfume. Uh, the, the, the the fragrance that he has is pleasing he obviously uh, shops for for nice cologne or something like that she likes his smell and it's a smell uh, that seems uh, to to please her so much that she likens it to his name it says your name is like perfume poured out so her his 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 smell pleases her and she says your name is like your smell now Some smells that we leave to linger are not nice and pleasing. And so is some people's name. Because name here is character. It speaks of their character, who this person is. And our desires that we should have need to be towards good character. And we know that's true, don't we? Someone who is perhaps physically attractive can become very ugly when we get to know them. But his name is pleasing like his fragrance is pleasing. So this isn't uh, tips on cologne. This is tips on character. This is when we're looking for a spouse, we need to look beyond the externals and to the character so who this person is and as as christians we should be looking for a christian but someone who is godly when we're looking for a spouse who we want to someone that we want to be with it should be a christian but also someone that's godly there's lots of christians that are ungodly and it's not wise to be with but we should be looking for christians who are godly but as Uh, as individuals, all of us should be developing character that when we leave a place, people say, I love his character. I love his character. That's what's going on here. She she wants this man, she desires this man because his character is as pleasing as the fragrance of his perfume. And then at the end of verse 3, no wonder... The young women love you. Other people love him. And she's saying, well, no wonder Your, 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 your fragrance of your character is so wonderful. No wonder others love you. And it's important that... And the word, by the way, for love here in verse 3 at the end is a different word to the word for love in verse 2. There's lots of different words for love in Hebrew and in Greek, but the word here for love is not love-making as in verse 2. This love is adoration or um, or admiration. No wonder they admire you. No wonder they adore you. And when desiring to be with somebody... We ought to take into account the reputation of that person among others. It is good to seek wise counsel as to whether this per, uh, is this person who they appear to be. That's really uh, what's going on here. His character is what is attractive here. And then in verse 4, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. The, uh, to, to her, this man is her king. Uh, when people got married in, those, in these days, uh, they even sometimes would have a, a pair of thrones for the husband and wife to sit on. Because for the wedding day, they were the king and the queen at this particular ceremony. And she sees him as her king. And she wants him to take her away into the private Chambers, the private rooms of this king so they can fulfill the desires that she has in verse 2. And the friends who are involved in this song uh, are affirming the goodness of this desire. They know this man is a good man. His character is pleasing. The, the, they, they do adore him. And when they see this woman with this man and the, and the beauty of this relationship... The friends rejoice and delight. They praise their love and they agree that it's better than wine. You see these kind of things at weddings, don't you? Don't, when we come to a wedding, we, we joyfully celebrate the union of this couple. And the friends at the wedding are together praising God for what he has done in bringing this couple together. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's what's going on and then how and then she she agrees with the friends how right they are to, to adore you so what we see here in the first uh, four verses is a longing for love but we see here a good desire in the right context and we've seen that what we how we what we should aim for here with this kind of desire within our marriages and it is healthy and that is blessed by God to desire our spouses in this way but there is a greater longing as well we need to long for Jesus Christ to long for him to delight us with his word to be pleased with the fragrance of his wonderful character to have time away with him in his chambers She um, only had this desire because she had spent time seeing this man. But if we never spend time with Jesus, we're never going to have the desire to be with him. This longing for intimacy that she has can be channeled into our longing for intimacy with Jesus Christ. The man whose name is above all names. This man whose character is wonderful. This man who gives us greater intimacy and satisfaction than we can find anywhere else. We need to long and desire Jesus. And I wonder, have you got this kind of longing? The kind we read in Psalm 84 earlier on, that kind of longing for Jesus? Or is your heart gone cold? So what we see here isn't necessarily what we have, but we should long for this kind of longing, a longing for love. However, this morning we said that although this song wants to take us back to the Garden of Eden, we are not there yet. And the desire that she has for this man is not without its problems. We are not in Eden where there is nakedness without shame. And what we see is that there is a vulnerability of love. And in fact, we see her vulnerability in two different ways. First of all, we see it in her attractiveness and then with his accessibility. So attractiveness is what we see in verses 5 and 6. And in verse 5, she describes herself as dark yet lovely. And she's speaking... To the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, when we're saying dark here, what it means is that her skin had been tanned by the sun. Now, you may be thinking, as I did when I first read this, yeah, but isn't that a good thing to be tanned? But the thing is, that's good in our culture, in our day. People spend, I, I, mean, you could, I mean, it's like five quid, isn't it, for like five minutes or something stupid, on a sunbed down the village. And it's, I've never been, so it might, I might have the wrong price, I don't know. Uh, I, yeah. so, but people go there because they want dark skin, because dark skin is what they uh, think is attractive. People uh, spend fortunes on stuff to rub on them, to make them tanned and you know, all kinds of things. As you can tell, I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. But the point is that in our day, tanned is beautiful. But in this day, the opposite was true, you see. Because to be tanned in this day was to show that you worked outside in the sun. And to work outside in the sun was uh, something that was looked down upon. And if you were rich, you would work inside. In other words, you wouldn't really have a job. You didn't have to go outside. And so when someone was dark, it shows uh, that they were working. And for us, I suppose you could argue that it's the opposite. If you can go outside and spend all day in the sun, you're not necessarily working, are you? But when you're in, inside, you don't get the suntan. So it's that kind of thing going on. She doesn't uh, meet the um, expectations of beauty for her day. She is dark. She is suntanned. And it's interesting, um, if you look at um, beauty over the world... Uh, different cultures have different expectations of what beautiful is and in fact if you go over history uh, there's different types of beauty that people uh, have have claimed is what the beauty uh, is of that particular time so for example uh, days gone by um, people preferred uh, women to be a bit bigger so that they looked like they could have children for example that kind of thing it changes over history but in her day she felt ugly. Dark am I', she says, and she's comparing herself to the daughters of Jerusalem. The daughters of Jerusalem, no doubt, were those women, the young women, who were indoors and they weren't dark. They met the expectations of the day, and as she compares herself to those women, she's saying dark am I', but she's persuading them differently dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. And as she's talking to them, she's persuading them of her beauty. And she says, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. The, the tents of Kedar uh, were uh, uh, tents that nomadic tribes would use. And the, 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 the canvas was very dark and very coarse. It wasn't very nice. But the tent curtains of Solomon, on the other hand, were beautiful. So she's dark like the tents of Kedar. And like the tent curtains of Solomon, she's Beautiful. Dark, yet lovely. That's what's going on in verse 5. And in verse 6, she asks these daughters, do not stare at me because I am dark. Now, a a stare, if I was to be staring at you, it's intrusive, isn't it? We don't like being stared at. When someone stares at you, you, you think, well, why are you staring at me? What's going on? Because it's intrusive. When you're stared at someone, at least you feel like, they're weighing you up, don't they? And there's a vulnerability in being stared at. And she's saying, don't stare at me. Don't look at me in that way. Don't weigh me up. Don't compare me to how you look. Turn away from me because I'm vulnerable when you're staring at me in that way. I mean, literally what's going on is she's saying, don't stare at me because... I am darkened by the sun. In other words, the sun has already stared at me and has made me dark. I don't need you to stare at me as well. That's what's going on there. She's got a a vulnerability about how how she appears. But there's another reason for her unattractiveness, and that is her past. Look what's going on in verse 6. Why is she dark? My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. So her brothers, uh, who are her mother's sons, she obviously hasn't got a good relationship with these brothers because she calls them my mother's sons. There's like a a barrier there between them. Uh, They made me work outside, and so they've made me dark. It's a little bit like a a Cinderella story going on here. She's forced to work, and so she, she doesn't feel attractive because of this. And it's them, what they've done to her, that have made her unattractive. So she's unattractive because of how she looks, that's how she feels. And she feels unattractive because of her past, because of what her brothers have done to her. And I think I see here two reasons why she feels unattractive that we can relate to today. The first reason is comparison with others. And we see this all the time today uh, Let me give you some examples uh, There was a, I forgot to get the picture to put on the screen But I was going to put up a picture And you've probably all seen this picture Of Princess Catherine Just after the birth of her latest child What did you notice about Princess Catherine When she appeared on the news Literally a couple of hours after giving birth She looked perfect didn't she Her hair was done She had this amazing dress on Um, she she just looked perfect and you look at this picture and you think well how on earth two hours ago was she giving birth because no woman normally looks like that two hours after giving birth do they I mean I'm not being uh, just a, a horrible man to say that women aren't necessarily looking at their best immediately after giving birth right but she comes out of the hospital with this baby in arms and she looks perfect doesn't she And how many women must be looking at that picture and thinking, well, I'll never look like that. But that kind of thing goes on all the time. The images that are portrayed are of perfect women. Photoshopped women. Women that have their picture taken, then they look at the picture and they take off all the bits they don't like and say, this is who I am. And the normal people who are looking at these pictures are comparing themselves to those pictures and they say, well... I can't can't compare to this. And so what do we do? Well, then we put pictures of ourselves on Instagram. And on Instagram, we present the perfect life. This is who I am. And this is what I want everyone to see. But the problem is everyone sees that and they really think you have a perfect life. They look at your Instagram profile and they say, but my life isn't like this. My life isn't perfect, like your life is perfect. What's wrong with me? Dark am I? And they're trying to persuade Others that, but I am lovely, look at my Instagram, you see how it goes. The comparison that can make them feel, make people feel unattractive. And then of course, we have pornography, don't we? And even men are vulnerable with this because they look at pornography and that's what they think sex is. And they think, well, there's no way I can possibly do that. And the women are looking at that and thinking, well, there's no way I'm like that. And they compare themselves to these images that are being bombarded around. And is it any wonder that they say, dark am I? And then that's made worse within our marriages when our spouses' eyes have wandered and they're looking at other images. And as spouses we feel, how can I even compare to that? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. So the first is comparison with others. That's why she feels unattractive. But then there is her past circumstances. For her, that was her brothers. Her brothers have made her feel unattractive because of what they've done to her. They forced her to work. And of course today, our past can make us feel vulnerable. Sexual abuse. Broken homes. Bullying at school. But also, bodies that change due to age, having children, injury or illness. You know, we don't look like we did when we were 20 years old. And we can feel vulnerable about that. And we can recognize, but I, I, and we look at pictures of ourselves 20 years ago and we think, well, look what I was like then. What's happened to me? And it can make us feel vulnerable. So she's feeling unattractive because she's comparing herself with these beautiful daughters of Jerusalem. And she's looking back at her past and she feels dark. So she's vulnerable because of her attractiveness. But the second area of vulnerability is his accessibility. Look at at verse 7. She's now speaking to this man and she's asking him to tell her where he grazes his flock. Now, this man appears to be here a shepherd, uh, and he's out in the fields with the other shepherds grazing his flock. And he, she asks him where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Now, at midday, uh, that was the, the hottest part of the day, so the shepherds would have a rest. The sheep would go to sleep, shepherds would have their lunch break. And she's saying, where, where do you graze your sheep so that I can meet you when you're resting at midday? In other words, can we do lunch? Can we meet for lunch? Meet in your lunch break. That's what really, she's asking herself, asking him. And she says, why must I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? She's saying, I want to meet you for lunch. But, but this veiled woman was, was saying this, a woman could not just go out in public and wander around searching for a man in these days. She wants to see him publicly. She doesn't want to have to hide herself. She wants just to be able to walk up and see him. To know where he is, so she's not wandering around like a veiled woman looking for this man. She wants access to him. And within, uh, within our relationships, quality time together is really important, isn't it? Put down the phone. Turn off the TV. Close the book. She is saying... Why should our relationship be like I'm hiding? Like you don't even know that I'm here. You know, we've all been there, I'm sure. You know, your your spouse is talking to you. Or not even your spouse. Someone's talking to you and you're reading a book or watching something. And it's especially hard for blokes because we cannot do more than one thing at a time. And we're reading. I mean, our children have even learnt to ask me things that they think I'll say no to when I'm doing something else. Because they know... I'm more likely to say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But you said, Dad, you know, that kind of thing. So, but but, but it's not good, is it? Because we're not with our spouses at that moment. And inaccessibility breeds a vulnerability. It says to the person that you're not accessible to, they're asking, do you even want to be with me? So we see vulnerability in love. That's verses 5 to 7. But wonderfully... This man turns things around and he answers her vulnerabilities. The third point here is the affirmation of love. He affirms her in various ways. And the first uh, thing we see about this affirmation is the affirmation removes the vulnerability. And it begins with uh, the man giving her reassurance with the two areas where she's vulnerable. Her attractiveness and her accessibility. And because it's a poem, they do things uh, sometimes called chiasms, where you have, um, uh, if you, A, A, B, B, A, so subject one, subject two, subject two, subject one. So she's talking about attractiveness, accessibility, and then he says accessibility, attractiveness. It's a poetic thing that's going on. So he starts off with the vulnerability of access in verse eight. Now, NIV says here, friends, uh, the ESV, and where I agree, uh, this is him speaking. He's responding to her question. So he says, if you do not know most beautiful of women, he responds a bit to her attractiveness as well. Notice that. Follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherd. So he tells her the way to find her, this direction, the tracks of the sheep, and then he tells her, how she can access him bring some young goats to graze so she's not able to just waltz up to the shepherds on her own without any goats apparently she needs to bring something with her in order to meet him uh, And so he says "Look, bring some goats follow the tracks of the sheep and that's where you'll be able to meet me and you'll be able to spend time with me so he's made it easy to access him he's, he's planned it out for her so that she can be with him You know, we should make our spouses feel like we actually want to spend time with them. Do you have areas of your life that are out of bounds? We shouldn't have those areas. We should plan times together. So he deals with the access. But then he deals with her attractiveness from verses 9 to 11. Now, when we are reading Song of Solomon... We have to understand the context and the culture that is being spoken of here. He is not saying, you look like a horse. And then we're thinking, well, that's terrible. Henry VIII did that, didn't he? With Anne of Cleves. I don't know if you know that. But uh, Henry VIII uh, was given a picture of his future wife by Thomas Cromwell. And she looked all right in the picture. But when she turned up on his wedding day, he actually said, but she looks like a horse. And he wasn't being nice. But here, the man is being complimentary. This is a a lovely thing. So what is going on? What does verse 9 mean? Can I say this to my wife with integrity? Well, this is what what is going on here. The mare, in verse 9, notice is among Pharaoh's chariot horses. And what's going on here is that in a battle within the Egyptian army, uh, the horses were tied to the chariots. But when the opponent's uh, were about to, the battle was about to start, Pharaoh would release the horses and they'd go and charge, going, and going crazy into the army opposing them. And the opposing army would be totally distracted, unable to fire their weapons because they've got these horses who had been wound up by the Egyptians running about all through. In other words, what he's saying to her is, you, my darling, are a total distraction to me. You drive me crazy. I can't do anything when you're around that's what he's saying not you look like a horse but you drive me to distraction you drive me crazy and it's a good thing isn't it if your spouse walks into the room and you're distracted you can't do anything else because they're around that's not a bad thing is it that's what's going on here that's what she's doing to him and then in verse 10 he remarks on her face and her neck he's noticing how they are adorned he's paying attention to her he's noticing her beauty He's noticing how the jewelry she's wearing enhances her beauty. He's not going to put in his diary that his wife's having a haircut so that he remembers to compliment her. He's actually noticing her beauty. That's what's going on in verse 10. And in verse 11, he seems to be saying here that he will help beautify her. He's going to be willing to go shopping with her and help her pick out the jewelry and pick out the outfits and give her the affirmation that, yes, they do look good. And this is why, this is why she can say, dark am I, yet lovely. Because the man has given her the confidence to say, to him, I am lovely. He gives her that confidence. Dark am I, yet lovely. Because he's given her that. You know, it's important that we affirm our spouses, and that we answer the vulnerabilities that they have. And in this song, at this point, the woman is more vulnerable. And it's safe to say, and you can argue with me afterwards if you wish, that it is more common for for women to feel this kind of vulnerability. And men need to work hard. At addressing the vulnerabilities of our spouses. Let them know that they are beautiful. And be available for them to spend time with you. And don't just let it be words. Don't say you're beautiful. And then go and look at other women. Don't promise time with your spouse. And then break that promise. Don't exacerbate the very vulnerabilities that they have. By saying one thing and then doing the opposite because you're making it worse. But let's think for a moment about Jesus, our great husband. Doesn't sin make us insecure? Don't we want to say, even to God, God, don't stare at me because I know my sin, I know that I'm unworthy, I know. That I, I, I'm una, I feel unattractive because of what I've done. Or, look at that Christian over there. They are so perfect. I'm nothing like them. How can I compare to that? And we think of our past. Lord, you know what I've done. You know the mess I've made of my life. But what does Jesus do? Jesus addresses our vulnerabilities. And he says, no, to me, you are beautiful. To me, you are lovely. To me, I've I've given you access to the throne of God. And I will spend as much time with you as, as you can. I'm always there. And this evening, if you're feeling the ugliness of sin upon you then let Jesus remove those vulnerabilities and clothe you in his glorious righteousness. Because when we're clothed with Jesus' clothes, we are nothing other than beautiful and lovely. And he looks upon us and he says, you are beautiful to me. So affirmation is so important here, isn't it? So the first, uh, the first, Well, I'm getting lost here. The first point is affirmation removes vulnerability. But secondly, we see that affirmation bears fruit in verses 12 to 17. Uh, we see the fruits of this affirmation as he's he's given uh, uh, these words of affirmation, and we see the fruit of that with this lovely exchange between the two of the between the two of them. Uh, from verse 12 onwards, there's a real freedom. That arises from the removal of the vulnerabilities. There's a removal of fear. And and this this is just lovely. So verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. So again, the king here is her man. He makes her spread her fragrance. And the perfume that is talked about here, uh, literally is spikenard. And spikenard was a very, very, very expensive perfume that came from India. And so, when spikenard is spread out, this is the most expensive perfume you've got. You may remember the story in the New Testament of the woman that poured spikenard to anoint Jesus before his death. And she gave the very best that she had, the the, the most expensive perfume, out on Jesus. That's what's going on here. She gives the best that she has to this man. Then in verse 13, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Myrrh is uh, sweet smelling, uh, and also myrrh was used uh, as an insect repellent, and women would put this around their neck and it would literally rest between their breasts because it would make them smell nice and they would get rid of the mosquitoes. But what she's saying here about the man in a very intimate way talking between the breasts to me, he is both sweet and he is all I want'. I want to repel other things away to be with him. And then in verse fourteen, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Well, Engedi was uh, a place that was an oasis in the desert, and a cluster of henna blossoms are sweet and beautiful flowers, having no place in a barren desert. But he, she's saying she, to him, she is—he is like an oasis. He's refreshing and lovely in the midst of this barren land. And then in from verses 15 to, to 17 again, I mean, I, w- I wish I could go into every word and every verse, but there's just not the time, but they're, 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 there's this back and forth. You are beautiful. You are handsome. And, all that, and they're just adoring one another in these, in these verses. And in fact, verse 17, I, I think that's the woman speaking. Uh, she's saying to him that the beams of our house are cedars, our furs are rafters. So she's saying that uh, she's speaking of security, the security of the home with the beams of cedar, and our home is beautiful, the rafters of fur. You don't need to have fur on your rafters. They can just be plain, but they're beautiful rafters. She's speaking of their home together, a place of security and a place of beauty. So the affirmation he's given her, he's he's spoken to her, addresses the vulnerabilities, and then it bears fruit with this beautiful freedom of exchange between one another. It's lovely, isn't it? A lovely uh, description of, of what's going on with this couple. And then thirdly, regarding the affirmation, it needs exclusivity. The woman is not going to be affirmed if she is not his one and only. There is no use in going to the woman and saying all these beautiful things to her and making all these promises to her and then going off with somebody else. And she says in chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, in the NIV, it's got a footnote there, which always makes me smile, because a rose is lovely, isn't it? A rose is a really nice flower. Uh, But it says there it's probably a member of the crocus family. It just doesn't sound as nice, does it? But what she's, uh, go, what's going on here is the flower that she's talking about is a flower that is really common. The flower is everywhere. And so she's saying, I am a, a flower uh, that is common. Uh, I'm nothing special. I'm just a flower among many flowers. A rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. There's loads of these roses. There's loads of these valleys. I'm just one of them. I'm I'm nothing special. You don't need to tell me that I'm beautiful like you are. I'm nothing special. But then he addresses it, doesn't he? Look at verse 2. It's almost like you could put at the beginning, no, 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 no. You're a lily, like a lily among thorns, is my darling among the young women. You see that? She says I'm like any other flower. He says no. You're like a lily among thorns. All other women to me are thorns but you're a lily among the thorns and he says among the young women who has she been who has she been comparing herself to those young women those daughters of jerusalem that just look so lovely and he's saying but to me they're, they're just thorns in comparison to you now that's not doesn't mean you have to say every woman apart from you is ugly but it does mean to say that i've got eyes only for you and compared to you every other woman is like a thorn And then in verse 3, she talks of his uh, exclusivity to her. Um, in the NIV, again, there's a gap here. I don't think there should be a gap. I think the gap should come at the end of verse 3. It doesn't matter all that much. But uh, she's saying to him, you're like an apple tree among uh, the trees of the forest. An apple tree has no reason to be in a forest. It wouldn't be there. So she's saying to him, to me, uh, you're like something that is sweet sweet. And something that's refreshing, but has no normal place in the, in the forest. In other words, you are unique to me. And the apples speak of sweetness and refreshment. And it says, I, I delight to sit in his shade. And his fruit is sweet to my taste. So uh, to me, among all the other young men, okay, comparing with the young women, like, among all the other young men, you're like an apple tree in the forest, There's no one like you to me. And I delight to sit in his shade. That's his protection. And his fruit is sweet to my taste. That's his refreshment of her. She wants to sit under his protection. She wants to sit under his refreshment. And she wants to do this. She delights to do it. And in this figurative language, I think we see that it's in line with the roles of men and women given elsewhere in the Bible. There is mutual adoration with the wife flowering and flourishing as she delights to sit under the shade in submission to the husband who is protecting and providing for her. That's what's going on here, in line with what we read in Ephesians chapter 5. But again, let's think of Jesus, our great husband. I mean, how much does he adore us? He woos us. He provides for us. He protects us. We sit under his shade and we do so delightfully. Delightfully submitting to his will and purpose for our lives, knowing that his fruit is sweet to our taste and is what we need for true refreshment and satisfaction. Only Jesus provides this. Well, from verse four onwards, the woman is not any longer speaking to the man, but rather she begins to address the daughters of Jerusalem, and they become a sounding board and a group that she begins to advise on the matters of love. And here we see her doing, uh, uh, doing that advising and that sounding as she describes to them uh, the delights and dangers of love. So in verse 3, she wants to sit under his shade. And now she goes on to describe how she wants more of this. In verse 4, she says, Let him lead me to the banquet hall. And let his banner over me be loved. The, the banqueting hall uh, was the place of celebration. She wants him to go public with his declaration of love. The banqueting hall was a public place where everyone would be. She wants a public declaration of love. And his banner over me is love. The banner was a military thing. The only place in the Bible you find this is in the book of Numbers, where the banners were over the tribes of Israel. And in Israel, each man or woman would be under the banner. And under that banner, you would be known by that tribe. And she's saying, I want everyone to know that he loves me. I want everyone to know that this is my man. That's what she's saying here. The love that they have, she's saying, should be so delightful that everyone knows about it. And I think there's a, an admonition here for us to be careful about how we speak about our spouses in public. It can be easy uh, to complain and it can be easy to put down, even in the form of jokes and sarcasm, our spouses in public. Don't do that. Rather, let your banner be love. You know, there was a, a couple in our church in Ivybridge. Uh, who I, I lived with for a while and, and he, he died a long time ago now but you knew he loved his wife because every time he spoke about her in public it was just so beautiful and they were in, they were in the 80s and you would think that he, he, he felt he was the luckiest guy that's ever lived because he's married to this woman and he always spoke about her so beautifully it was wonderful and it, made, it reminds me of this verse of them that, 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 that the banner is love you, they knew, you knew they loved each other. That's what's going on in verse 4. And then in verse 5 and 6, she starts to go, a little, I think, go a little bit crazy. And hopefully you guys aren't. I apologize for the time. Um, so verse 5, um, the love overwhelms her. Okay, so she, she's saying, strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. She's so overwhelmed, she needs to have some raisins and apples. Uh, literally, it means, lie me down on the raisins, knock me out, because she's just faint with love. She's, and when we're in love, we sometimes do crazy things, don't we? And that's kind of what's going on here. She's just going a little bit mad because she's in love with this man. And that should be true sometimes. And know within married life, we don't wake up every morning feeling the need for raisins and apples. But at the same time, we need to keep the fires burning. But then in verse 6, I feel here that the, the, the curtain comes down. Uh, he says his lef, she says, his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. And what we have here uh, is an intimate embrace. You can, um, you can picture the embrace that's going on here, I hope. And it's left there. And it's almost as if the curtain comes down on this couple. Now, is this a real event? Is this them physically being together? Or is this a desire that she's expressing? It doesn't matter in a sense, it's poetry. But the poem is building up to the consummation at the middle of the poem. So I would say here it's not a physical reality. This is her desire, what she's wanting. But again, notice the exclusiveness. His arm, his left arm, his right arm. She wants him, him, and him alone. And as we read these verses, this is lovely. This is what... Love should be. This is how we should be with our spouses. But again, as we think of Jesus. Jesus is the husband who publicly declares his love for us on the cross. His banner over us is love and nothing else but love, isn't it? And sometimes, let me challenge you. And again, if this is controversial... I don't really apologize, but you can have a think about it at least. But shouldn't sometimes our desire for Jesus be so much. We desire relationship and intimacy with God so much that we are like she is in verse five, where we're almost faint with that desire to be with Jesus. That we're crying out to God, God, I I desire you so much. I feel this longing for you so much that I need strengthening. I think we've lost that sometimes, haven't we? But at the end of this section in verse 7, we see a refrain that appears actually three times throughout this poem. Look at verse verse 7. And here's where we don't see the delights of love, but the dangers of love. She says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now normally when you swear by something, we read this in the book of Hebrews, you swear by something higher than yourselves. And so you may be wondering, what on earth is she doing swearing by uh, animals you might find on Canuck Chase? But actually there's a play on words going on here. The, the, The Hebrew word for gazelle and doe are plays on the name of God. So the Hebrew word for gazelle sounds like lord of hosts, And the Hebrew word for dough sounds like El Shaddai. Lord of hosts, El Shaddai, they're both names of God. So she's swearing here in a poetic manner by the names of God, by God. I I urge you in the name of God, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And we've seen here her desire taking over somewhat, so much so that she's gone a bit crazy. She needs raisins and apples and things. And I think perhaps what she's saying here is, we need to cool this down a bit. We need to stop. But the advice here to the daughters of Jerusalem is so important for us. Especially if we are not married. The advice here is that the appropriate time to arouse and awaken love is within marriage. The desire is not wrong. But don't take the path too quickly. Don't get physical at the wrong time. You're ready for a relationship when you are ready for marriage. And the warning here is not to toy around with these things because they're dangerous. So, and this applies to all of us, we need to be careful what we are watching, what we are reading, that those things don't arouse or awaken love when it's not ready. We need to be careful, and I say this uh, especially to the uh, young women who we, we've talked about this in, Ma- in the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, not to perhaps dress in such a way that arouses or awakens love in the men when it's not time. And that's, not, uh, that's in the interest of love your neighbor, by the way, isn't it? To love one another enough to not arouse or awaken love within each other when it's not ready and not appropriate. Now that's not all set. And, need, and I think in our culture, by the way, we just need to be careful... As we live in a culture that's constantly stirring up desire. We need to be careful how we walk. Now that's not all said because sex is somehow bad or dirty. We've seen the opposite here I think. But because it is beautiful and it is special. The Bible's teaching is not for us to forego sexual desire completely. But to wait until the time is right and it can be fulfilled. Now outside of marriage love may give pleasure. But for the Christian especially who is trying to follow Jesus, it comes with shame, with fear, with guilt and regret. Within marriage, love can please. Now I'm going to close just with uh, one other thing to say. Because as we have read these words, we should all at least in some way have recognised that we have failed, haven't we? I have We have failed in these areas. But Jesus has showed his love for us in dying for our sins. And so there is forgiveness of sin as we come to Christ. And we seek that forgiveness. But as we look again at this song as well, as we've sought the forgiveness of Jesus, it should help us to desire to live as we ought to sexually as Christians. And so we need to repent of sin and start loving as we should be. But also, I think we need to repent of our lack of desire for Christ and start desiring him above all other things. And as we do so, we do so remembering that he loves us and adores us above all other things himself. We are his bride and he delights in us. He finds us attractive. He gives us his access He is the most wonderful husband that we could ever be. And so let us desire and long for him. And as we do that and desire Christ, only through that will we be the kind of husbands and wives that we ought to be as well. I apologize uh, that I've spoken a little bit longer. Um, But these things are important, aren't they, that we understand what is going on in this song and we're going to respond uh, by singing ourselves uh, and thinking about the way that God has given us access uh, to him we can now approach him so let's uh, uh, stand uh, and sing boldly I approach thinking about how we can now have access to our wonderful uh, God through Jesus